Hello, and welcome to On the Case. I'm Michael DePoe Wilson, your host, and this is the interview show where we sit down with authors of our popular case report series to get the behind the scenes story on the most unique clinical case studies published in the magazine. But this is a very special episode. Today, we have Dr. Elizabeth Frost, who is the original clinical editor of the Frost series, which bears her name in honor of her contributions to the art of the case study. James Pruden, our editorial director, caught up with Dr. Frost on some of her career highlights in treating and writing about unusual cases. But before we get to James's conversation with Dr. Frost, I have a couple quick reminders. We have a new listener survey this year, which we are using to help us produce a better show for you, our listeners. You'll find a link to the survey in the episode description. It takes just a few minutes to fill out, and your participation will go a long way in helping us get to know you better, what you like about the show, why you listen, and what you would love to hear more about from us and our guests. So please take a few minutes to answer some questions from us to help us build a better show for you. And one last thing, if you have a case report of your own that you would like to submit for publication, you can go to anesthesiologynews.com slash case submission. We would love to see what you have. Okay, without further ado, let's get to James's conversation with Dr. Frost. Listen to the new MedEd Learning Experience podcast from Medtronic, featuring brief interview-style discussions with clinical experts about safe and effective use of therapies in patient monitoring and respiratory interventions. The first series includes discussions on anesthesia and brain monitoring from raw EEG to process EEG, the use of TIVA to post-operative outcomes, and many other topics. Check out the MedEd Learning Experience podcast from Medtronic on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. New episodes every Wednesday. Uh, today on our podcast, we have Dr. Elizabeth Frost. In addition to being on our editorial advisory board, she's a clinical professor of anesthesiology, perioperative, and pain medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. In case you don't know, Dr. Frost started presenting monthly cases in anesthesiology news 32 years ago, only relatively recently passing the baton to Dr. Sonia Vaida, who was the director of obstetric anesthesia and professor of anesthesiology and OBGYN at Penn State Health Hershey Medical Center. Uh, this unbroken chain of case studies has been given the title of the Frost Series in recognition of Dr. Frost's work. Dr. Vaida, who has been the medical editor of the Frost Series for the past several years, is now moving on to other responsibilities, and we thank her profusely for her work on the series. And we are very pleased to announce the new medical editor of the series will be Dr. Karen Seibert, currently the Director of Communications of the UCLA Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine. She is starting up her work on this in July. So that means that we have two months without an editor. So in fact, I went back to Dr. Frost and asked her for suggestions, and she suggested Dr. Frost herself. And she very quickly provided two great cases, which will be published in the May and June issues. And by quickly, I mean it was probably about an hour. After I got, after we uh, settled who was going to do it, she sent me two great cases. So that's in May and June. But that got us thinking. So, Dr. Frost, in your long career, you have overseen, I'm sure, thousands of cases. Um, and I'm sure most were no doubt run of the mill, nothing out of the ordinary cases. But I'm sure you have some interesting stories uh, of unusual cases and probably a lot of them. 
And so for this episode of On the Case, uh, we thought we'd ask you to recount a few of those cases in a HIPAA-appropriate way, of course. So if I were to ask you, Dr. Frost, what, is, what would be uh, one of those interesting cases? What would you say? Well, I remember one that was uh, really quite um, unusual. I remember it was around about uh, lunchtime, and I had been asked to uh, relieve the anesthesiologist in a case so she could go for lunch. Sounds like a good idea. So I went in there. The anesthesiologist I was relieving, well known to me, an excellent anesthesiologist, I went in there and she told me, well, this is um, a middle-aged man and he's having um, some deep brain stimulation because he's got um, Parkinson's disease. He's got a couple of comorbidities, you know, but otherwise he's not bad. And we've been giving him a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of what I call a bigger cake anesthesia. Just keep the patient quiet and peaceful and happy. And she said, everything has been pretty peaceful going forward. And everything looks good. And I said, fine, go have a nice lunch. Well, she went off to lunch. And a few moments later, the patient began to cough. He began to have chest pain. And I knew that he had some degree of hypertension, some hyperlipidemia. Uh, You know, his cardiogram wasn't fantastic, but it wasn't awful. So the surgeon looks at me and said, oh, for heaven's sake, can't you keep him still? You know, I'm, I'm doing some delicate work here. Stop and coughing, would you? Stop this. I said, hmm, okay. I looked at my vital signs and I suddenly saw, to my uh, incredible surprise, amazement, the end tidal CO2 had dropped from 40 down to 8. So I said to the surgeon, hey, stop immediately. You're in training air. He said, no, no I'm not. I'm not doing anything. I said, believe me, believe me. So he took a syringe full of water because, you know, the patient is sitting up and breathing spontaneously. So the patient is starting off respiration with a negative inspiratory pressure. So I said, please do me a favor, squirt some water on your wound now, would you? He did. And he said, oh, look at that. There's little bubbles coming up. I said, would you lay the patient flat now so we can stop in training air? He said, oh, okay. So he did that. We laid the patient flat. I was maintaining ventilation as best as I could. The patient had become somewhat tachycardic. And uh, as soon as the patient was flat, air stopped going in. And of course, the air would go into the heart, through the heart very quickly and into the lungs where it was, took a while, but it would be absorbed. But over the next five to 10 minutes, the end tidal CO2 began to creep back up again to 40. The heart rate went down from 110 down to about 80 to 90 where it was before. And over about 15, 20 minutes or so, the whole episode was resolved. Now, we used to think of venous air embolism when we were doing patients in a sitting position under anesthesia with positive pressure ventilation. It did happen. And we kind of got over that maybe about 30, 40 years ago. No, no, no big deal. But now when patients are sitting up and breathing spontaneously, the risk of venous air embolism is very much more real. So, of course, my colleague came back into the room and she said, everything okay? I said, everything's fine. We're going on with the case. It's great. <laughs> when I hear that story, I, obviously there's a whole series of events there, but what, what, the first when you started by saying there was a handover, I thought maybe this, this uh, is a case of you know, handovers being uh, problematic. And that really wasn't the case. In this, in this story, 
the handover was incidental, correct? You're absolutely right. Handovers are a big problem. We create a lot of errors because we don't we don't absolutely hand over all the information. And yes, Joint Commission has recognized that to be a big problem, but it was not in this case. This was something that happened absolutely out of the blue after my colleague had left and while I was there. Wow, that's a good one. How about another one? All right, I'll give you another one. This was another interesting, uh, surprising case. This happened in the Bronx some years ago. A young girl came in. She was about 14 years old. And she, uh, she'd she been with her friends at the mall. And uh, all of a sudden, she had lost consciousness. She fell. And what happened? Well, she seemed to be around about eight months pregnant. She was brought in in a semi-comatose state. And her friends who were with her, a couple of girls, they were they were terrified. They said, you know, you know she's she's pregnant and, and you know, she's 14. She's almost 15. And pregnant was being a good idea, but she got a bit fed up with it. And then her girlfriend, then her, a friend of hers said, all you have to do is to sniff a little cocaine and the cocaine will shear off the placenta and the baby will just slip out and everything will be fine. Wow. Well, unfortunately, about 10% of the population do have some kind of a malformation within their vascular system in their brain. And she did. And she had an aneurysm. She actually she had an AV malformation and it broke and she had um, intracranial hemorrhage. Oh, no. So she came in there, as I said, semi-comatose. We took her right away into the operating room. The question was, should we deliver the baby? No, because if we were to deliver the baby when there was still essentially a hole in her head that was bleeding out. The clamping of the umbilical cord would increase the maternal blood flow to such an extent that it would absolutely increase the bleeding. So we got her into the operating room. We had the obstetrician there. The abdomen was prepped and draped and ready to do a cesarean section. And as quickly as possible, it turned out it was a posterior communicating artery aneurysm, AVM, which is the easiest thing to take care of where the abnormality is there. So with a frontotemporal incision, the surgeon was able to get in there very, very quickly and to tie off the bleeder. As soon as the bleeder was tied off, as soon as the uh, hole, as it were, in her head was no longer a hole in her head, right. we were the surgeon was able to do um, a cesarean section right away, and we got... Um, a good baby out of the out of the whole outcome. We had other cases like that, in which it was not quite as um, uh, as much of an emergency, and we were able to keep the baby and keep the mother and the baby baby inside up until term, when we then delivered the baby by planned cesarean section at forty weeks. So that was another one that was kind of interesting. Listen to the new MedEd Learning Experience podcast from Medtronic, featuring brief interview-style discussions with clinical experts about safe and effective use of therapies in patient monitoring and respiratory interventions. The first series includes discussions on anesthesia and brain monitoring from raw EEG to processed EEG, the use of TIVA to post-operative outcomes, and many other topics. Check out the MedEd Learning Experience podcast from Medtronic on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. New episodes every Wednesday. Let's do one more at least. All right. Uh, one more. This was another one that was really frightening. 
this was a young man. Well, he's in his 40s, 45 or so. For me, that's incredibly young. Again, he also had some kind of an arteriovenous malformation in his brain. Well, we had started off the operation. It was going pretty well. Surgeon was coming down on the, uh, on the abnormality. And then, unfortunately, somehow or other, the arterial side of the malformation was cauterized and blocked off which meant that venous blood was pouring into the malformation. Was that a mistake of the uh, surgeon? Well, I, I wouldn't say it was a mistake. Whatever it was, it, it just happened. So suddenly the AVM blew up. There was blood everywhere. It was hitting the ceiling. It was just one of those, oh my goodness. So the surgeon, as surgeons will want to do at that point, looked at me and he said, do something. <laughs> okay. So I'll do something. What am I going to do? Well, I'm in the neurosurgical room and I've got everything I need there. So I took nitroglycerin and I hung up nitroglycerin in a big hurry and dropped the patient's blood pressure to zero, at which point he was essentially dead for a few minutes. At that point, and as, as I've told my residents for years, dead men don't bleed. And he didn't. And the uh, surgeon was able to get control of it. He only had two or three minutes to do it. So he really had to work very hard at it. We gave some blood, um, and at the end of it, you know, with two or three minutes with no blood pressure, vessels are all tied off, things are looking good, and the uh, surgeon says, Whew, wow, sure, we managed to get out of that one, didn't we? Well, yeah, we did. <laughs> all right, what are we going to do now? So now I gave some vasopressor to get the blood pressure back up again, and the surgeon and I looked at each other, and I said, now what? Okay. So we closed up the head, put back the head together, um, closed up the scalp, and I um, reversed the anesthetic, and the patient began to wake up. All right. So the next day, I went to see the patient, and I said, how are you? He said, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. He said, tell me about the operation. I said, well, you know, we got a little bit of bleeding, so I had to give you a little bit of blood, which I really didn't anticipate, but it was all right. He said, no. He said, no, that's not true. He said, I was there. I was on the ceiling in the operating room. I was watching you. Uh, interesting. Wouldn't be the first time people have said that. And he said, you and the surgeon, you didn't say very much to each other, but you were working so hard and so furiously. You kept looking at the monitors. You were hanging up blood. You were just doing everything possible. And I looked at the surgeon and he too was working furiously. He said, and then it all resolved. And he said, and then I woke up in the recovery room. I said, oh. And as I was going out of the patient's room, I met the surgeon coming in and I said, you know what? Maybe you want to sit down before you talk to the patient. Right. <laughs> Very good stories. Uh, that's fantastic. And you really ought to write a book, by the way, Dr. Frost, because that would be well read. and You'd get instant uh, marketing at, at, in Anesthesiology News because we'd definitely <laughs> highlight the book. But I think that's, our, that's a good series for our, On the Case. And I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Frost for being our guest this month on On The Case, and thank you to all of you for joining us. If you don't already, please subscribe to our channel, and if you are already subscribed, then share us with your friends and colleagues. 
And don't forget to click on the link in the episode description to fill out our listener survey as well. We'll be back in two weeks with the next episode of Ask the Experts. Until then, thanks for listening. Anesthesiology News Presents On the Case was produced this month by me, Michael DePoe Wilson, and James Pruden, our editorial director. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Our music comes from Blue Dot Studios. The rest of the team is Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Betty Song, Kristen Janicone, Lucia Scanlon, Kwang Yi Chung, and Sam Steinfeld. And a special thank you to our guest for this episode, Dr. Frost. On the Case is a project of Anesthesiology News, the most widely read publication for the specialty, and the McMahon Publishing Group.